The English word bank, meaning a depository and lending institution, derives from the Italian word banca, or bench. This belies the origins of modern finance in Renaissance Italy, where deals initially struck at coffeehouse benches evolved into the great trading and banking houses of the Medicis, where double-entry bookkeeping enabled the matching of debtors with creditors that spurred the growth of industrial Europe over the coming centuries. Today, with daily capital flows measured in the trillions of dollars enabled by high-speed fiber optics and a global communications network, major decisions happen much more quickly. And because of the levered nature of fractional reserve finance, regional concern can magnify into global contagion faster than an actual pandemic. In the case of last weekend, where Silicon Valley Bank, one of the top 30 global banks, went into receivership, the political institutions of the United States were caught off guard, and in an attempt to quell further concerns, wanted to overdrive this week as the Federal Reserve discount window was opened, guaranteeing the assets of all major banks. Not to be outdone, the Swiss National Bank just intervened in the takeover of Credit Suisse, a century and a half years old institution to further halt panic in European markets. Memories of the 2008 financial crisis are on everyone's mind, and the ripple effects of these events are surely to continue throughout the year. Well, I'm not a crook. I've burned everything I've got. A military-industrial complex. We are here to destroy the control over the industry of other people. I did not trade arms for hostage. It's been time to The Hello and welcome to the myth of the 20th century. Um, due to somewhat popular demand and circumstances definitely beyond our control, we are convening a very uh, brief, I would, I would hope, uh, discussion just to go over what's been going on in the banking system in the United States in particular, but uh, now, as of a few days ago, uh, the world. The... Um, the whole thing kind of kicked off last week, uh, Friday, um, and it was something that one would expect to be an isolated incident, but as globalization and financialization has proceeded apace over the past 30 plus years, the the rapidity of at which panic spreads is really mind boggling. And what, what let's just lay out some of the facts first of all um there was actually a failure before last friday uh at uh silvergate uh, this was this crypto bank that uh personally i'm not very familiar with i'd actually never heard of it and i'd sort I of seen a few headlines it, uh, yeah i never heard of it either to be honest I, I i had no idea what it was i mean you know again do not repeat do not give your private keys if you have cryptocurrency 
to third parties unless you want to deal with stuff like this. If you do, that's on you. But there's not, you know, a requirement. You you give your keys to these custodial accounts. Uh, So we've already kind of talked about that after FTX blew up. But um, you know, you know, what's interesting is when I when I first heard that Silicon Valley Bank was having issues. Uh, I immediately thought, oh, they must have gotten in the, on the crypto racket. And I mean, I just assumed so. It's like, oh, like yet another bank that has completely uh, overblown its crypto <laughs> portfolio. But then, I mean, it ended up having nothing to do with that at all. But, you know, it's, it's, it's interesting now that that is everybody's first go-to kind of knee-jerk response. Like, oh, another crypto scam. Or, oh, you know, another crypto blow-up. Uh, if anything, you know, that sector has been in a uh, cascading financial meltdown for like a good solid year now. And I suspect it will get a lot worse probably over the course of, uh, of this year as the uh, Biden administration uh, you know, prepares to finally, I think, um, uh, decapitate most of the crypto sector. I, I would uh... – I would broadly agree. It's hard to obviously predict exactly what's going to happen, but I would differentiate between and a lot of the crypto Bitcoin enthusiasts, especially will try to distinguish between a security and a currency or commodity. Uh, They like to sort of think of Bitcoin as something that's out of the control of basically a, a third party which it is it's a decentralized system as opposed to something like ethereum which has butari bakanin you know whatever that skinny russian dude who founded it he he effectively can dilute the stuff whenever he wants and that's typically the case of how a lot of these other uh, currencies operate Uh, the originators can print effectively you know just like every other central bank um and so I think what might happen is you will continue to see a lack of confidence in those yeah. secondary tertiary crypto currencies. But I, I think Bitcoin still does have a decent chance. And we actually we've, we've seen it go up this week. Um, and yeah, I also think yeah, there's a decent that- chance the central banks may actually use that as sort of a backstop or underpinning to their digital um, uh, cryptocurrencies. So but that, that's sort of just my rough rough expectation yeah Yeah, so so there was this uh this the silver scam institution or whatever that blew up and uh um it it really i mean it made some headlines i I think i remember hearing about it and you know i I think i saw a headline something about crypto and then i immediately you know stopped caring probably (laughs) five seconds later it's like what just just whatever, man. Like you know, I mean, it's just hard to it's hard to care about this much anymore, uh, particularly after FTX and and the entire exchange realm for crypto basically imploded overnight. I mean, you look at almost anything involved in that sector now, and you just assume like how much of this is basically a scam, or how much of this is you know basically a Ponzi scheme, and nobody's called it out yet. And you're right. I think that Bitcoin will probably come out of this, hopefully, as once again the only cryptocurrency. I really wish most of these uh, these shit coins would just go away. Like, guys, find something better to do with your time. Find something more productive. Just focus on Bitcoin. <laughs> 
<laughs> just, yeah. just focus on the fundamentals, please. Yeah. Get some, you know, non-fraudulent exchanges up. Improve the blockchain technology because there's more. There's a lot of multifaceted purposes for that outside of Bitcoin. And just, you know, work on Bitcoin. Like, why do we need all of these other scams? What is the point of this? Come on. This, this is, I mean, it's getting, it's getting out of hand and now you have like, you know, cartoonish uh, shysters from uh, the Pale of Europe getting in on the game. That's how you know it's become mainstream. <laughs> when when someone like Sam Bankman-Fried exists in your your thing, whatever it is, you know, that's how you know that it, it's way too popular. You need to make this more streamlined, more obscure again. And Bitcoin will have a nice rise in value, and you can use that as a good alternative. We gotta, you gotta like clean out all this other junk from the crypto sector. I mean, it's it's absurd. I hope most of these institutions get fried as a part of the, as a part of the the impending meltdown. I hope they all just go away, and we're only left with Bitcoin again. Well, you know, whether you agree with Hans's uh, particular. Uh, desire for this uh, shakeout uh, or a a different version of a shakeout, there will be a shakeout. And I think anytime something like this happens, uh, we, as the sort of saying goes, we find out who's swimming naked when the tide comes out. Those who don't have their, their trunks on uh, are revealed to be those that, uh, you know, just like if you're selling a stock short and you actually don't have the liquidity to, back it up you know you get margin called and that's kind of analogous to what's been going on um but if i could uh just give a brief overview of what happened with silicon valley bank which i think is systemically more important than these crypto exchanges and banks because most people don't really use them silicon valley bank technically ranked amongst the top 30 uh globally system so there's a ranking that has, that's compiled by the United States government and in sort of in concert with other governments around the world. And you, uh, Silicon Valley Bank uh, was a glo- what's deemed a globally systemic financial institution. Te- technically, better- technically it wasn't, but you could have made that argument prior to the legislative change during the Trump administration where they actually raised the capital. Doing. So technically... Yeah, technically uh, floor. It, was, it was yeah. It, it it was falling under this rule for a long time. And it it was it was sort of accidentally I think included in that rule that was crafted in the Trump administration, which we can also talk about lots of hot takes from the usual people, you know, about how mm. uh, you know, this is just uh, Donald Trump it just proves he was a uh, a liar and he doesn't care about people like there's probably no. there was actually a very smart reason why that was passed i, I can give you a good reason why i think all right well let, let's it. just go over it briefly and but, then we'll get to the but i should say itself, that yeah, but, silicon valley bank used to be what was deemed a, a globally uh, systemic or whatever the technical term is much like credit suisse also is deemed uh, it's it's, it's called the acronym is a gsib it's a globally systemically important bank and it, it's effectively, uh, I actually sat in a presentation once about, uh, from, from this uh, finance professor who was actually trying to go over, like, what does that even mean? And it's a little bit subjective, but effectively, if you map out all the interdependencies between the different uh, counterparties, when you have uh, a swap on a credit default in, um, event, 
the banks basically insure each other, they lend to each other, and it, it's a really complicated web of uh, interactions. And a lot of them uh, are sort of peripheral, some of them more central, obviously like banks like JP Morgan are incredibly important. Um, but you know, other than that, they also just look at the total assets under management, like what does the balance sheet look like? Uh, that's usually the, the most basic way of saying, okay, who's above this? You're systemically important. If you're below it, you're not important. And obviously that's not really the case after we just, what we just witnessed. But um, it, again, it goes to like, okay, th- this is the challenge of regulating complex financial systems. How do you go about regulating? And what are your rules? What are your thresholds? What are the numbers? What are the ratios? It's not, it's not trivial. Um, but just to go to like the, the, allegation that Trump alone was pushing for this. That's, that's simply not true. There were many people on both sides of the aisle that pushed this forward. Uh, Barney Frank, for example, who was famous for his Dodd right, Frank yeah. uh, thing after the financial crisis. Uh, he, he had a role in um, actually putting and there was down the- criticism for this legislation to remove the uh, requirement for banks like Silicon Valley Bank to have uh, these, uh, what they call, the Fed requires these uh, things that are GSIBs. They require these things called stress tests. And so if you have a, a balance sheet yeah, yeah. that has XYZ on it, uh, under current circumstances, it may look fine, but the stress test basically uh, subjects it to a hypothetical whereby the stock market goes down 40% if interest rates, you know, change by X percent, uh, what happens? Uh, are you still solvent? And right. the bigger banks and, have to do that. Well, and this was, first of all, this is all passed prior to the extreme uh, ramp up in, mon- in monetary policy. So what, what ended up undoing well, Silicon Valley be, be, be had, clear what you had, mean by that. What, what do you mean by ramp up? The, well, the extreme ramp up starting in 2020, where the Fed basically opened the floodgates on, you know, dropping liquidity into the market. I believe this legislation Dur- during was passed. COVID. In, during COVID. Yes, this legislation was passed during 2018. And yeah, let's wind back so. the clock to what, what, what the economic conditions look like in 2018. Inflation was basically a non-existent problem. Correct. Uh, you had solid economic growth. You had high levels of savings rates. You had, you know, lower amounts of, you know, people were paying down their debt. You had high wage growth. I mean, you know, the economy was looking good by all metrics, large amounts of business investment. So they looked at the situation and they said, why the hell not? Let's add a nice little extra kick to the fire here. What this will do is for a lot of these smaller, you know, you know, they're not, this isn't exactly mom and pop credit unions, okay? But these are smaller banks. Um, let's remove some of the burden from them. Particularly these regional banks, these banks in the middle of nowhere, in the Midwest, in the Western United States, in the Great Lakes region, in, in parts of the South. Let's remove these requirements. Let's remove these regulations. These banks are spending tens of millions of dollars a year on compliance. They're paying out, you know, basically their life savings and legal fees every year. I mean, this is insane. You know, this is like a whole additional bureaucracy on a lot of banks that quite frankly aren't really going to run into these problems most likely. And why are we requiring them to do this? It was a smart move too because 
if you were the Trump administration and your fundamental promise to the American people was we want broad spectrum economic growth out in the hinter <clears throat> out in the hinterland, right? So we want growth in the Great Lakes, we want growth in Ohio, we want growth in the Midwest, in the South, and you know, so forth. Rural America, middle America. This is one of the various ways you're gonna do that. You can't just make growth. You don't wave a wand. You have to actually enact policy. What's one of the ways you can do that? Okay, take the reins off some of these smaller banks in these areas that have good relationships with local business owners, local investors. You know, let them that money that they're wasting on compliance, that they're wasting on legal fees, they're wasting on stress testing, communications, all this stuff. Either they can then put that, they can keep that for their own sort of contingency funds, or they can lend it out, and we can get some additional capital expenditures, some nice growth in these areas. All it takes is a you know little investment here, a little investment there. You get a factory here, a factory there. All of a sudden, you've enriched the lives of a couple counties and a couple states. That's tens of thousands of jobs. It's people that vote for you. Like you know, this isn't rocket science. So this, these are like the very common sense reasons why this stuff was done. The people that immediately came out within 48 hours, this take was percolating. Oh, that you know, the Trump administration is is the, the fault uh, the, of why Silicon Valley Bank collapsed. Also, th this is being perpetuated mostly online by kind of the same community that you know was so heavily <laughs> invested in this bank to begin with. So of course they're you know, look for anybody to blame but but themselves. But this whole this whole thing started in, in way before the the liquidity injection to the extreme that's gone on for the last three years. So let's make that clear. What Silicon Valley Bank did was also a side kind of smart move. They what did, what did they do, Adam? They basically took this massive massive influx of deposits, mm -hmm. and they said we need it. We need a good place to park all this extra cash where do we put it well u.s treasuries look pretty hot right now why not you could that? you could you could think of it that way uh i think technically right. it was more concentrated and, and they have all of the above by the way but it was more concentrated right. in mortgage-backed securities which are yes. also yes. backed by government institutions like fannie and freddie right. but the if I can just get and to the the, the, the main after, reason, particularly after tw after two thousand eight, by the way, <laughs> I think everybody is under the impression now that the federal government and the Federal Reserve of the United States are never going to let anything ever happen to mortgage-backed securities ever again. So it's not exactly you know foolhardy to say that's not a bad bet, because there's just no way after what happened in 08 that they would they would let that value collapse. I I think that. The Fed would do everything infinitely possible to prevent the value of those mortgage-backed securities. All right, g g g give me a give me a couple minutes. I, I'm going to try to set some context here. So, just to address what you just said, uh, I have the numbers in front of me, and this is actually a ranking. Uh, I'll put it on the slideshow, but the the table includes basically all the big banks that you would recognize. Silicon Valley Bank is, and I, I'm I'm not going to perhaps be as kind to them as uh, what I'm what might be hearing from you, but uh, I also will give them some slack, but just as a as a percentage of their portfolio they held 
uh, 64% of their portfolio in these uh, mortgage-backed securities, uh, 14% in treasuries, 14% in agency, CMBS, commercial mortgage-backed securities, uh, and, a, and a, co- a few others that were reasonably small. But if you if you add it all up and then look at the percentage of all that stuff as a percentage of their earnings, they had the highest out of any other bank. In other words, they weren't actually making money off of loans, commercial loans to Mm -hmm. their own clients. They actually were just getting large deposits and then putting that into these securities, which are, this is where they got in trouble. They basically were exposed to interest rate risk. And uh, what that means is that basically if you have a portfolio of securities, especially bonds, uh, the bond is, it's, it's influenced obviously by the interest rate uh, as the market sets it. So if I, if I lend to Hans uh, a $100 and I ask him, give me 5% every year uh, in exchange for that. If interest rates are at 5%, the value of that bond will basically remain stable. However, if the interest rates double, or more like they did in this past year. Uh, they went by 57 times, if you can believe that. Uh, that bond becomes less valuable because what happens is the alternatives to somebody who's coming into the, the marketplace will be like, okay, uh, Adam has this bond for uh, $100 with the 5% yield on it. Uh, but I can go somewhere else and get a 10% yield. So I don't want that bond. However, I can still sell it to that other person by lowering the price. And so that's basically what happens is there's an inverse correlation between the yield on a, a bond uh, and the, its price. So if the, the market rate goes up for the yield, the price of the bond goes down. And then the opposite can happen too. But what they had done, because they had concentrated so much of their portfolio in these securities, as opposed to JP Morgan, for example, which had only about 20% in these securities, they were heavily levered against the market swings. So what during the financial crisis, the, the sort of government was actually encouraging a lot of parking of the money into these uh, sort of government-backed securities because they basically wanted to lower the, the risk profile of most of the banks. Uh, so they, they sold a bunch of bonds and and they, they wanted to, the banks to basically deposit all that stuff at the Fed uh, so they can kind of control it. So they, these guys did that, but they did it way more than uh, any other bank. And they were allowed also not to have to mark these prices down as the market situation changed. So they call that mark-to-market accounting. They had a special category called held to maturity on the balance sheet for these banks, whereby they didn't have to do that because if they did, it would it would basically show that they're insolvent and that might precipitate more of these types of bank runs, Which and I can understand that legislation. Problem was that Silicon Valley Bank was kind of unique in that their depositor base was heavily skewed towards large accounts as opposed to Bank of America or something where most of the accounts, and I don't have the numbers in front of me, but from what I could tell, most of these big banks, a lot of their deposits are held by many, many, many small customers. The opposite was true at Silicon Valley Bank, where a small number of customers had very large amounts of money. And this was predominantly because their clientele, and they specialized in this, was the startup and tech companies that 
the VC is encouraged to go use Silicon Valley Bank for. And so they had these big deposits. And then literally what happened on who knows when exactly last week, but the allegation to Peter Thiel is that he he tried to get his money out and they sort of sandbagged him, slowed, you know, they, they were really slow in, in delivering the funds and he got annoyed. He eventually got his mm-hmm. money, but then he got on, you know, the, the, like, just like, you know, all of us, like we're on these like electronic message boards effectively. He told all the other VCs, Hey, these guys uh, are having problems. You might want to pull out. And that caused I don't think he a told run. them that just that they're having problems, by the way, I think he probably told them they're finished. Because the, the the speed at which you know that happened, he pulled out. I think it was Wednesday of that week, and then the amount of money that surged out the following day and the morning Thursday was incredible. Mm-hmm. I think that you know he, I think he probably spooked people, yeah. which was you know they're clearly they're they're upside down. They're he, they're practically insolvent. He's certainly the most famous of the VCs that did this, but he's not alone. Yeah. I mean, there are many others no, that were doing the no. same thing. And, you know, is that sort of illegal? No. I mean, it's, it's actually apparently slightly illegal to encourage a run on the bank. But how do you really classify that if you're just kind of trying to give sound advice to people that, you know, hey, this bank might be having trouble. You might want to get your deposits out. And, and the other thing to know, and I think most people at this point know this, but the FDIC, which is the Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation, they back up uh, depositors for situations like this where if the bank is in, I don't know if we want to go into fractional reserve banking, but the bank basically doesn't have your money uh, typically uh, unless they're a narrow bank, which doesn't really exist. Um, They lend out that money and the way it's done is actually very electronic. It's not even in real money. So when you walk down to the bank, let's say you're a company and you need to get a hundred million dollars, the bank basically just creates an account for you it's like a line of credit, basically, that says you have a $100 million of loan money and you could tap that whenever you want, but it's basically just sitting there uh, in, in virtual land. And what they have to do is they have to back up that loan uh, book by a certain amount of, of equity, which is like the difference between assets minus liabilities. They have to have like some cash sitting around. And fractional reserve allows them to keep a fraction of that total liability, those, those, um, or the assets in this case, like the, the, the amount of money that they might have to, to fork over. And so because most people don't go, go down and withdraw or, or hit their line of credit all at once, they don't need all that cash really to sit around. So back in the financial crisis, they had a, a really high, uh, relatively speaking, amount of leverage. Uh, Lehman Brothers, I think, had like a 33 to 1 amount of debt to equity ratio. And nowadays it's gotten a lot better because of the scrutiny that the banks are, have been under. It's down to about 10. But um, I think in the case of like Silicon Valley Bank, they might have been more leveraged. I think the, the GSIBs have less leverage than the regionals. Um, and so all these factors sort of play uh, play into the risk at which something like this can happen. But one, because they had all these securities on their books that they needed to sell basically, and we're not really accounting for that. People were kind of given sort of a false impression of the stability of the bank. And then what happened was when they got all these withdrawals, there was like literally $42 billion in withdrawals. They just didn't have the money. So they had to then go into these held to maturities uh, securities on their books and sell those. 
And they didn't want to do that because they would, one, lose a lot of money, and two, they would make the bank look really weak. So they tried to actually raise equity just on a private private sale. Yeah, they, they you know sell shares, basically, and they couldn't do it. And that's really what, what kicked off the, the whole collapse. Uh, they couldn't raise the, the capital. And so that happened on Friday. Then uh, and Thursday was bad, too. And then they basically stopped trading on Friday. Uh, the FDIC, I think, might have taken it over on Friday. Saturday, Signature Bank was taken over. And they didn't even have the same issues that... Um, so my Valley bank was going under, they basically just were like preemptively taken over by the FDIC. Uh, and then this week, uh, first Republic was having a huge amount of problems. Uh, as of today, they just got a injection of capital of about $30 billion from JP Morgan and Wells Fargo. Uh, and before that it was Tuesday or Wednesday. I, I'm, it's, it's, it's so hard to keep track of all this stuff. Credit Suisse had basically a, a massive well, before, loss of confidence. Before Credit Suisse, and, and it's not just the First Republic, there's about 12 different regional banks. West Bank Corps is right. one of them. There's a few others. Particularly Comerica in, in, is, is similar to yeah. um, uh, Silicon Valley. Yeah, and they, and they, they specialize in like the tech sector, and those were obviously <laughs> first in the list. But there, there are others. I mean, KeyBank got hit by like mm-hmm. 30%. Uh, down on the stock market. Um, Zion Bank got hit. Uh, There's just yeah. so many. Uh, Truist got hit. Yeah, it's so a lot of these financial institutions that um, uh, are you know regional, or they have more spe- specific types of clientele, or they're a lot riskier, or they have a lot more leverage. Whatever it is, you know, basically, I think what happened was that. Um, uh, there was an implication made from what was going on at Silicon Valley Bank and then what happened at Signature over the weekend. Basically, every investor looked at any bank with a similar leverage ratio, with a similar uh, tech focus. or The, the held to maturity uh, percentage was yeah. in particularly scrutinized. And also, this is uh, I tried to yeah, do the same yeah, thing, yeah. by the way, uh, just because, you know, I... I look at the stock market a lot and I, I do not own any banks for the record. <laughs> um, do not recommend buying banks at the moment, especially, but, uh, I was just trying to see if I could like find anything out from like, you know, the sec filings there. It, it is so difficult. I mean, this stuff is, even if you spend the time a, and then B understand it, um, they're, they're not, giving you the full details it's basically just a summary no, of what they have that, that's why that's why at this point you know you do have to have um it's not a meme you, you really do need to be a a sector analyst with specific knowledge in that one sector um with access to tools you know the bloomberg terminal lots of other paid subscription models for other services you and, you know you really do at this point in order to grok what's actually happening you also need to be connected to groups of other people either co-workers or co- or just colleagues in general people who work on your floor uh, people who work in the in the industry you know you need to have your private message groups um, no one person can do it all it's just too complicated of yeah. a sector and particularly finance now yeah. did the financial sector from the uh, from the point of view of financial trading financial analysis the banking sector way too complicated 
So that's part of, I mean, there were a litany of factors, but I think ultimately, yeah, you know, every bank that looked similar, whatever it was, uh, if there was some characteristic that was similar to what was going on with SVB and, uh, and, and, um, uh, signature, then by Monday morning they were hit. And I clearly, um, they had an idea of what was about to happen, um, before Monday morning. So over the course of the weekend, um, there were uh, lots of photos that made their way online, lots of pieces of uh, footage of people standing outside um, bank branches across the United States Saturday morning. Now, that kind of thing hasn't been seen in many, many years. I would say that wasn't even really seen in 08 so much. There weren't a lot of people running to their local bank branch as much in 08. Seeing people actually, it, it was a different. Up, it was a different thing because in 08, it was a different kind of meltdown. It was right? a credit. It was a credit problem yeah, so that the loans that the, they had this, made this were bad. Is, this is like the, There's yeah. no money for the depositors, which is yes. Sort of this like, is a, this is a liquidity crisis, and yeah. and we haven't seen liquidity crises like this since uh, really the 1930s. Yeah. So this is the first time in a long time. And it's been 90 years. Um, since the United States has experienced um, the or the early warning signs of a classic uh, bank run, now we did actually have, I should say, there was there were some incidences uh, or incidents that were kind of like this during the savings and loan crisis. Yes. However, this the savings and loan crisis was very uh, as we covered. We did a whole show on the topic. Um, it was very drawn out over the course of time. It was sort of a slow motion collapse. So you didn't have the panicked faces. You didn't have people lining up around the country all of a sudden. Um, that just didn't happen because it was very slow. It was sort of a, a an ordered collapse. Um, everything was handled through backroom deals very swiftly and over time. Um, so the United States hasn't really experienced this in 90 years, let's say. So this is why um, the first thing Monday morning, despite anything else going on on the planet, technically the most powerful man on the planet, uh, the president of the United States, um, the first thing he does is get on national television and tell the entire country, followed by the, and the entire planet, that everyone's deposits are safe. Please do not go to your local bank. Now, obviously, if you followed the markets Monday and Tuesday, nobody cared what Joe Biden had to say um, because nobody, you know, everybody was. Oh, he was already late something. to the party at that point. I mean, everybody in Washington was. He was he was totally late to the party, but it, it does. It, and it was embarrassing. It was politically embarrassing for him to do that and then be. They should have known that people were going to ignore him. But it does. I mean, it is important um, to point out that. It's rare for a president of the United States to get up Monday morning, 9 a.m., East Coast hours, and say, do not worry about your deposits. Now, no president <laughs> has given a national, you know, important emergency address like that in nearly 100 years. Yeah, I'm thinking that of like was, FDR, was, you know, it's like yeah, that, bank that was, holidays. That was that was shocking. And they were taking it way too seriously. Now, when it was announced that um, 
that he was going to do this the night before, you and I were were, uh, were texting Adam, mm-hmm. and we were kind of shocked. We were like, "Oh my God! Like th- this is uh, this is." You know, I believe someone else who we were chatting with compared it to Argentina. They said, "You know, this is this is insane. Like why why are they taking this this so seriously?" We were all assuming, okay, there must be something very very wrong, and they're they're trying to figure it out over the weekend and then Monday morning. Biden is going to give a whole big national address. If you recall, in 2008, um, George W. Bush did the same thing. Mm-hmm. There was a moment, um, I think it might have been on a Monday morning or a Tuesday morning, but right before markets opened, um, the president, you know, George W. Bush, got on national television and basically told the whole planet that America was undergoing a financial meltdown, that the credit markets were seizing up, that he was giving emergency authority to the Federal Reserve and the Treasury Department, that he was meeting with members of Congress to, you know, look at whatever. Like, it was a big deal. I remember I was in, you know, uh, I was kind of young, but I, I turn on the television the first thing in the morning, and there's the president and big, bright red letters across the bottom of the screen, you know, financial meltdown. It's like, what is happening? It's very rare for a president to do that. So clearly, um, the idea of a bank run is is like the worst possible thing from a politician standpoint. Maybe the only thing besides nuclear war would really, you know, actually scare an American president that much. A bank run, well, <laughs> an old-fashioned American bank run, something out of the previous century, is 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 a political nightmare. Particularly because there is no great solution once it gets going. There is, there's nothing you can do. Here's, here's what, okay, go ahead. Let me just say, I think Biden was six, Biden was semi-successful in reassuring, reassuring the normie world that, um, the deposits are safe. Mm -hmm. So they threw a lot of chum in the water for the market. Um, Biden, I think successfully calmed the normie verse, as I said, um, uh, they, had the Fed go out and say we have an emergency backstop of $25 billion, which everybody you know, kind of laughed at, but okay, there, there's some cash. They had the FDIC come out and basically say, okay, we're working on a way to ensure that every uninsured deposit at, a, at SVB, this is very important, every uninsured deposit will be covered. Right. The investors are screwed, um, but every uninsured deposit is safe. Now, this was a big deal for the FTC to come out and do this. And it was a big deal for them to say no taxpayer dollars involved, which is kind of, you know, it's kind of a scam because everything that the Fed is doing is basically, you know, future taxpayer dollars that have to be paid. And everything that the Treasury Department was doing with its own backstops and liquidity, you know, with its help and it, it, dispatching all of these bureaucrats to help, that's all tax dollars. So. There's lots of tax money being spent on this process to the tunes of hundreds of millions, billions of dollars. It's neither here nor there. The FDIC comes out and says the uninsured deposits, that's not going to be a federal bailout. That is going to be uh, utilized. The the funds will be replenished uh, if necessary uh, via the fees that have accumulated over time in the FDIC for these sorts of events. That was a little disconcerting as well because uh, on Monday when it looked like we were, were going into a banking crisis or at least the beginnings of one were starting, um, 
you know, very, very rapidly, you could see how that could turn against the FDIC. If the FDIC comes out and says, um, all uninsured deposits are covered under the FDIC's, uh, you know, sort of emergency contingency funds through the, the accumulated fees from over the years. Well, that's going to be drained very rapidly. Like, you know, that, that's just not it. Once you say it, this applies for one bank, this applies for all banks. So this might be actually, you know, something that will affect the FDIC over the next months or years. They came out and said all uninsured deposits, we're going to cover them. The next time a bank fails, the next time 10 banks fail, 100 banks fail, um, people are going to be asking the FDIC for the uninsured deposits to be secured as well. So this is potentially not the best move for the FDIC. Their calculus might have been we're going to forestall a banking run by telling everybody that even if you, you don't worry about your deposits, even if they're uninsured, we're going to cover them anyway. So you might as well keep them there. The idea being that a lot of banking is ultimately a confidence game. You're keeping your deposits in the bank. It'll remain somewhat stable. That way, even if its stock dips in price, even if it you know has some, it has some bad assets on its portfolio, it still has a strong, steady capital base it can work with. So you don't wind up in the Lehman moment, effectively. This is what everybody was worried about. You want to nip this thing in the bud right away. You want to restore confidence. You want everybody to know that the deposits are there and that nobody should pull their money out. They kind of succeeded in that. But they didn't succeed in doing um, was ensuring that nobody would absolutely hammer the stock price of every regional and mid-sized bank in the country. <laughs> Anyone who had a stock to get hammered got hammered. Anyone who had any sort of any hedge fund, who had any investment or any any investors who had any kind of investment of any kind in anyone who was doing regional home loans and regional mortgage-backed securities or you know regional commercial uh, real estate or a- any of this stuff, regional manufacturing, everybody was getting wiped out, just completely blown out that day. People were pulling money left and right. Everybody wanted to be much more liquid all of a sudden. So you were seeing you know widespread issues across the country. So then they had to come out and say, okay, not only not only are all uninsured deposits going to be covered for the major, you know, where however wherever this goes, um, we will we will work with the regional banks to ensure that they have liquidity injections, that they have bridge loans, that they are given the adequate low cost financing from, uh, you know other commercial banks, and if necessary, the federal government. And that calmed everybody down, which should have been a huge insight into the market, by the way. Everybody now basically is waiting and expecting for the federal government and J.P. Morgan to come out and say, we will backstop this. The minute that the federal government, J.P. Morgan, come out and say that they're going to you know, backstop something, then, okay, it's all fine. So these, this expectation was already there, apparently, in the back of everyone's mind. Now it's been solidified that if you crash the market hard enough, um, you'll get what you want, which is you, you, know, you want the federal government to secure your investment effectively, which is what they're doing. They're, you know, they're working to ensure that even the investors are covered. 
So as long as the bank doesn't go under, its stock price will go back up. The investors will do fine. So the federal government is, is, is really stepping in and saying that nobody is allowed to fail really in the banking sector. A few banks were allowed to – not allowed to fail. They failed before the feds could get in there and prevent it realistically. But no bank after, after that is allowed to fail. I hope that people really picked up on that was what the Biden administration and the law and the, the big four commercial banks in this country were trying to get across to the market was that we're not allowing banks to fail anymore. Those days are over. OK. And, and if we can if we can control a bank and prevent it from failing, they will. Why is J.P. Morgan injecting billions of dollars into what's effectively a competitor just to keep them on the market? It doesn't make any sense other than. They, there's a tremendous fear or, or something of general bank failure. I, I can't really even understand what All their right, logic let, is. Let, let, me re, let me respond. You've, you've gone on for a little bit here, so I'm trying to remember what you, what you said here. But it's uh, – I went on for a little bit. Yeah, no, just, just give, me, give, me, give, me a, give me a few minutes. So um, the – First thing you were talking about was what the the White House was doing. Uh, I, 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 you know, none of us here are Biden fans, but I don't think they could have done anything but what he did because it's true yeah. to, to 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 be absent in a situation like this. I think is a strong signal that there's absolutely no leadership, and that causes more more fear. Do I like that our leaders are 70 and 80 years old? No, I don't think that's good, but we can't fix that over a weekend. That's more of a systemic issue that is afflicting our political class. And that, that's something for, you know, going forward perhaps that we can, we can address. But the, the, the question that you just raised about why do you need to do this type of liquidity injection why is it um, why is it allowed? Why is it good? Uh, I'd like to sort of make an analogy. I understand why it's good, by the way. I'm asking why are the large commercial banks involved in this? It would have, it would have made more sense if it was just the feds doing a, a traditional bailout. Why is J.P. Morgan getting involved? Well, that's it's, what, it's, that's it's, the it's, angle I can't figure it's out. It's complicated because there is a sense that – there needs to be some free market activity here. And obviously JP Morgan mm. is a, it's, it's a hand in glove institution at this point with, with the government, yes. but it has more private market credibility than obviously the fed does. And so I think having, having banks like that, like Wells Fargo and JP Morgan did today with first Republic, I think, is a signal to the market that not just the government who has, in a sense, unlimited money, it's, it's a signal, whether it's legitimate or not, I think it does transmit to the market that there is willingness of the private entities to take risk because they're taking more risk than the government would have to because they can backstop anything they want. And I think that mm -hmm. is more of a signal of confidence to the, the banking sector in particular, but also the general, general public. And I, I just want to also reiterate to people that, uh, you know, cause I've been listening to this stuff for 
the past week, uh, almost straight. And I've, I've heard almost every argument at this point that I can, I can think of, and I'm sure that I'm missing some, but one of the big contentions during 2008 and 2009 and a little bit now, but it hasn't really gotten as widespread yet. If, if that will be the case, we'll, we'll see. But during 08, at least, and a little bit now, there was a lot of anger that was sort of the synthesis of the Occupy Wall Street movement that popped up in the general public at these quote unquote bailouts that were given to these banks. And I can understand the emotional reaction because people were like, well, you know, how come Wall Street who screwed everything up is getting government money? I mean, I, I agree with the sort of critique that people who made mistakes shouldn't get rewarded. I mean, hundred percent. And I also think that it was very suspect, if not criminal, that some of the banking executives walked away with golden parachutes and didn't serve jail time like in some of some other countries. But in order to mitigate damage to not only the banks, but to the public, again, banking is sort of like a utility at this point. It's like if you don't have water, if you don't have roads, if you don't have a fire department, if there's a fire and like whoever started the fire, I mean, obviously, you know, it's their fault. But if you don't put the friggin' fire out, everybody's house is going to burn down. And so I think it makes, I think that's a good analogy to understand why it's important for these things to get stopped. 100%, you need to punish the executives. You need to punish even the shareholders. I'm a little bit surprised that they're actually trying to make solvent uh, all the shareholders. Perhaps a haircut or perhaps just making sure that this these banks don't actually completely go under is maybe a better way to go about it as opposed to getting them all the way back to where they were trading two weeks ago. But I think uh, you do need to have an understanding that this stuff is not really rational at a certain point. If there's a well, bank yeah. that's not run correctly, it needs to be uh, subject to market forces and be punished, especially the leadership. But the depositors this are... This is it's, why, it's, hold, this hold is on. why, by the way, I, I, oh, okay, go ahead. Yeah. So the, the depositors should not be damaged by this stuff. And again, it's sort of like, is there, is there a reason for the public to do this at their expense? Yes, because one, your deposits are, every, everybody depends on that. But two, and, and this is the last point I'll make, there actually is money to be made uh, by doing this because what happened in 08, remember that big TARP program, which was like $700 billion of quote unquote taxpayer money? It's sort of the Fed, first of all, doing this. And believe it or not, the government, or at least the Fed, made money on that because they were effectively the lender of last resort and they were effectively like a, a distressed debt hedge fund for a few years. And what they ended up buying during that period ended up making them money. And so it's not even like costing anybody anything. It's actually benefiting people in the longer run. And, you know, those two things, it's basically stability and actually the cost is not really there if you stretch it out over enough time. The The longer term questions I think are more legitimate about moral hazard, creating a setting for creating the sort of bad decisions that I think were made at Silicon Valley Bank. We didn't even get into like, they didn't have a hedging strategy around interest rate risk. They didn't have any interest rate swaps. Um, that sort of thing doesn't need to be encouraged. And I, there should be more 
punishment slash regulation perhaps. But going forward, I think that's maybe what we can do. But I think when a crisis, you got to put the fire up. So that's all. Weren't they, weren't they like without a risk management head for a year or something? So I saw yes. some story. And apparently the woman who was in charge of it was posting, you know, like diversity, inclusion, and woke. But, no, no, but I stuff. thought that woman, that woman wasn't even on the American side. She was like part of like their uk branch which is diminutive uh, maybe compared. maybe you know i didn't see it i just heard it so who knows you, yeah you there, there was something just things. there was something utterly bizarre where they just didn't have a head of risk management for over a year and and i mean there's there's little things like that where you kind of mm, you, you start to realize maybe this is yeah this is just a poorly run bank i will say uh i'm not i'm not defending them by the way but i think that they operated at a certain wavelength, maybe until the last couple of years. Mm-hmm. And, and the, that, that was particularly focused on their traditional business model, which was high net worth clients. Mm-hmm. Um, that they sort of got through networking and stuff like that. This is, this is one of the, those are some of those nice, you know, fat deposits that just sort of sit there and grow and they just give them, you know, nice little services and, it's very, very simple business. They had a big business with VCs. They had like accounts at like over a thousand venture capital firms. Just something, I mean, they're just huge with the venture capital business, all kinds of bank services. They had like a VC analytics service. They had their own VC subsidiary. I mean, that was like their bread and butter. And then, of course, they did traditional loan for a very long time since the 80s, traditional loans to, to, to business owners and startups and small businesses. Like it wasn't, they had a very kind of, you know, niche, but also normal banking business. They had a lot of the sort of luxury brand items that are common in NorCal, the winery business, the watchmaking business, the jewelry business, like, you know, the, the, the high class imports, like they had these sorts of accounts and, and they did these sorts of services. This was kind of just what they did. And they tried to become a large scale investment bank with a trading operation on top of that or something in the last 10 years, if, if I understand correctly. I think that they just got out of their out of their debt. And then when they received this massive influx of deposits in 2020, um, the point I was making earlier when I was kind of stressing the environment was different in 2018 when these rules were put in place, when when the deposits rolled in in 2020, you know, they were looking at the situation saying, okay, the, the Fed is basically saying it's free money, interest rates are, are going to be rock bottom indefinitely. Why not put it all in T-bills? Why do we have to worry about hedging risk? Like, what do we care the Fed is basically making money free, and we're getting these massive, massive amounts of deposits. Our capital base is, is totally fine. Like, I could kind of see it from that perspective. Now, that doesn't mean you shouldn't have a head of risk management. You shouldn't have some swaps. You shouldn't have a department that's worried about you know <laughs> basic things like the int- what happens if the interest rates go up a couple percentage points. Yeah, but. I can, you know, I think that this is a this was a bank, a financial institution that had a very kind of good business model, and just through sheer avarice and some level of inexperience, 
tried to become a, a Wells Fargo or a B of A or JP Morgan overnight. And it was just simply not prepared for that level of market action. I think that was their biggest problem. They just they they had the they had the money. They walked into this thing not understanding that they were competing at a new level of banking. Something that they just didn't do. They just didn't they didn't do that kind of banking. Well, this is a very this is a very large scale traditional bank for a long time. They the, the, yeah, they've been around the since the eighties, I think. Yeah. 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 80, 82 or eighty three. Like this is not it's not like this is their first time around the block either, which makes the situation even stranger. It would have been one thing if it was one of these scam VC funds or whatever, you know, that came up in the last 10 years. This is like kind of an institution in the Valley, which was also odd you know, that, that, that they would wind up in this situation. Uh, we should talk about maybe the absolute panicked meltdown <laughs> that, Everyone who works in the tech sector had from <laughs> Friday night until like midday yeah. Monday when the FDIC announced that all uninsured deposits were covered. I mean, the 72 hours of, of just cortisol maxing was, was, was insane. Gary Tan was, uh, was up until three o'clock in the morning, you know, tweeting about it's an extinction level event. <laughs> For the startup industry, fifteen. Bill Ackman said, "Can you imagine if if the Russian cyber attack hit fifteen thousand small businesses? Because that's about that's what's about to happen." And yeah. it was, I mean, it was insane. These people were just absolutely losing their minds. Well, there was th no th not surprising. We, okay, they had a lot of money yes, on the line. Okay, not surprising. They had some cash on the line. But there was no way it was going to be that bad. And it was, I mean, the, the big thing that everybody was worried about was payroll. Like, companies aren't going to meet payroll. Like, oh, okay. That's, that's a legitimate concern. That, that's a legitimate concern. But immediately, there was lots of other VC funds. There were lots of other VC funds, banks in the area that were giving out, you know, kind of immediate no-interest bridge loans or low-interest bridge loans or just... You know, a small scale capital infusion. They were spreading out money across the area, or across the valley, so that everybody could make payroll. Like, you know, the problem was being solved. Everybody was kind of figuring it out. It, you know, wasn't going to be the end of the world. And then the feds came out and said, "Okay, all uninsured deposits. You know, you can quit your bitching." Like, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, watching Gary Tan, for people who don't know, is the head of Y Combinator. And Bill Ackman. What happened to Sam Altman? Is he is he out? I didn't hear of anything from Sam Altman. Uh, I mean, you're the one who follows uh, uh, Jason uh, Calalismus and, uh, no, and no, 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 no. I don't, I don't follow Jason Calacanis. I follow their <laughs> their podcast. I don't follow Jason, but Jason runs it, and so yeah, I have to put up with him. He, he's okay, bye, bye. but I I just think he's uh, he's a little hysterical sometimes. Um, well, he was also he was like basically having an emotional meltdown, and you know it, it, these these guys were were 
you would think that these people would have known, like, there's no way the feds are not going to bail them out. Like, come on, guys. Everybody knew the feds were going to do it. The question was, how are they? Uh, no, I, I'll be honest. I don't think that was obvious because there's not really a direct line between Silicon Valley and Washington. Obviously, there yes, is. Yes, there is. A, wait a minute, wait a minute. There is a connection, but it is not as cozy as New York, Washington, and when the speed at which the tech industry moves and the financial markets move and you don't have a first line to these guys who are basically making massive decisions on your behalf uh, and you have people in New York that can do that and you can't, you're at a huge disadvantage, especially, you know, when, and this, this takes maybe a little tinfoil hat, but I don't think it's that big of a stretch to look at what happened during 08 and project that out to now, especially with regards to crypto, and think that maybe there's an intentional attack on Silicon Valley from New York when it comes to, is this crypto stuff going to displace our power? Is this uh, VC community going to displace us? I wouldn't be surprised if the guys in New York are happy this all happened. So I, I don't blame the VCs for trying to get the attention of Washington. I think it was necessary. Do they deserve the money? That's maybe a second question. But um, I do think it is an important aspect of, of our economy. I, I heard a statistic that said that 30% of the effective GDP in the United States is uh, created by companies that were uh, founded with venture capital. Um, I'd have to see the exact, yeah. you know, math on that. But I mean, I, I don't think it's that big of a stretch. Majority Obviously, of people the, the, the are. I mean, there's lots of those stats. Much, that, majority of that. people are employed by businesses with less than 50 people. Like, you know, yeah. I mean, I, I'm not downplaying the importance of it. I, 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 I'm downplaying or not downplaying. I'm discounting <laughs> Chamath and Jason and 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 Gary Tan and all these types who, who basically were acting like it was the end of their world and, and uh, i mean it was it was it was kind of funny to, to some well, extent well, to that, see how that's it, what okay th this is why it's tricky because you don't know see a lot of this stuff has true, to do yeah. with other people just like in, in when you're investing in a, a company in the stock market the company could be fine but you know if you look at how quickly stock prices move that's because there's certain trading that goes on that you don't have any control of that can actually cause a company to go under because if there's a loss of confidence, especially in banking, I mean, if you're an industrial company, it's a little bit harder because, you know, you do have uh, physical assets that are not going to go anywhere. But, you know, finance is, is very perception driven. And, you know, you talk about the dollar, you know, any fiat currency. I mean, if there's a crisis in confidence, if people don't believe in it anymore, crazy things can happen. And, you don't know in situations like this when, cause like I, I remember during the weekend I was like, Oh man, like, so I was talking to friends like, you know, who don't really follow this stuff and they had no idea what was going on. But yeah. I knew from listening to podcasts like that or other things on online that there was a problem. And the big discussion over the weekend was what the hell's going to happen when your mom or your dad or whoever, uh, you know, normal person finds out, are they going to run to their bank and start withdrawing and causing a huge downward spiral? And what I think the logic of what these VCs were, one, it was selfish because they didn't want to lose their money. But two, it does make sense if you get it 
in theory at least, and you're worried that if people start finding out who don't actually understand how this stuff works, they, they panic even harder than what happens. And I think the logic was you need to get out in front of this before even they, you know, the normal person is worried that they do something even dumber. And I think that yeah. makes sense to me. I think that, that that's a reasonable, you know, path uh, to, you know, bring the government in and, and try to stop this before it gets, gets worse. Well, yeah, 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 yeah. And I'm I'm not exactly opposed to you know something like the FDIC. I actually think that the FDIC, uh, in theory, has been you know has actually been effective. It's one of the more one of the more effective government agencies, to be honest, yeah. or get government agencies, to be honest. Uh, there was a there was an interesting article that was posted. I'll have to find it again. Detailing how we've had over 200 bank failures or something like that of varying sizes. Some of these are actually quite small um, since two since the year 2000, including you know the rash of failures after 07 yeah, yeah. and 08. Um, and the FDIC has you know sort of handled this quite well. I will say that the FDIC, particularly since 2000, it seems to you know their their chief goal seems to be you know the consolidation of banks though. And this seems to always be the MO is, okay, we have this, you know, financial institution, it's basically falling apart, FDIC comes in, bails out the depositors, and then, you know, very, very quickly auctions this off to one of the larger banks. And this is why we now have the big four, as we think of them. This is why we have... JP Mega, as people are calling it. Mm-hmm. This is why JP Morgan is the world's biggest bank now. Somehow it came out of the financial crisis bigger and more powerful than ever. No, it, it's not just a random occurrence, though. It, it is, yes, yeah. I think, the best well, run major bank in the world. I mean, maybe not the yes. world, but at least the United States, uh, as far as I could tell. And, and, you're, and you're right that it's a hand in glove thing with the U.S. government. Definitely, you know, I'm sure that the FDIC is very close with J.P. Morgan and vice versa for litany of reasons. And I'm sure that J.P. Morgan and Goldman apparently have been sniffing around at, at SVB for a while now. That was the rumor that apparently Goldman was had already been had already been brought in. Okay, so this is also a chronology that's not clear to me when they knew they had a problem. So there were some accounts that they had. There were people that were reporting on SVB back in January that it was effectively an insolvent company. Um, there were there was that newsletter by that that one guy. Hank pointed him out to us. I can't remember who, who this guy is. He's like some reactionary adjacent guy. He writes some newsletter that everybody allegedly reads in sort of like the VC industry. And he about in late February, he wrote a newsletter effectively coming to the same conclusion that SVB was an insolvent bank effectively. And a couple of weeks later, boom, you know, you know, run on the bank. So this was already sort of in the ether. People knew that this is potentially um, potentially a problem, a lot like with Credit Suisse, which I guess we'll get to next. People have been people have known about Credit Suisse for forever as being like uh, the next big problem. But I imagine that there, there was some level of interaction where the guys at SVB knew that they were going to go down. And allegedly Goldman and J.P. Morgan were already sniffing around weeks ahead of time before this happened. 
Goldman was also potentially involved in like they were brought in immediately to perform some kind of audit or look at the books when SVB put out that really horrifying um, – what did they put out? They put out like some kind of their earnings report or – some kind of statement on their portfolio, and that's mm-hmm. what freaked everybody out in the market. I think, I think it was probably when they're trying to do an equity raise. I'm not sure though. But. Yeah, yeah. Goldman was already brought in. Like Goldman was already there when that happened. So there's some chronology here that's not clear. My guess is that the government was already kind of aware that there was a problem, and that's why the you know the two major banks, Goldman and J.P. Morgan, were involved to some extent. Already, I'm sure in a year we'll get the real chronology of what was really going on, but something tells me that this was already kind of predicted um, a while back. Do you actually, you know, it made me think, do you remember during COVID when the Fed had the bond buying program where they were like going around and the buying? The repo? <laughs> no, not the repo program. Well, the, there was so there was the reverse repo market stuff, but in mm-hmm. twenty mid twenty twenty, remember they un, to buoy the market, they unleashed their like bond buying program, their corporate yeah. bond buying program, and they were buying ETFs and yeah. billions of dollars, to, like buoy the market and keep corporations like going. Uh, yeah. Uh, do you remember when like it was I think it was BlackRock that was effectively facilitating all of that for the Fed, like the Fed. Well, who else is going to do it? I mean, they have the connections. Right. So, right, but in you know the situation with J.P. Morgan and uh, and uh, to, you know this week, you know coming in to buoy the Martha banking sector, it reminded me of that. Like the federal government, base you know Jerome Powell and Yellen, I assume, call up Jamie Dimon, and they're like, "Listen, you know, we need you to run this like." sort of pseudo program for us, which is, you know, we need to rescue the regional banking sector. What can you do? Mm-hmm. Maybe this is, maybe this is the way the federal government is going to behave now. You know, they sort of <laughs> they test, they, they did a beta test during COVID with the, with the bond buying program with BlackRock. And now, you know, like they're going to have one of these major financial institutions just sort of swoop in and solve their problems for them. It, it, it could be, I mean, again, it's, it's like you're damned if you do, you're damned if you don't at this point, yeah. what are, what are our choices? I mean, people, I, the whole weekend and, and this week, um, people have been going back and forth as to moral hazard. Is this going to create precedents for bad behavior? I will say that I think the, the trend towards more and more consolidation is alarming because I think if you look at uh, places like Europe and um, I'm not as familiar with, with how Asian banking works, but the European banking system is basically one of a few gargantuan banks uh, and Canada also. And, you know, that creates some, I think, version of stability. Uh, but it also, it, it's, it's very stifling and you are not going to see any alternatives to your bank banking sector if that is the trend. And I don't have it in front of me, but I, I saw a chart that is probably the same math that you're looking at that showed that, you know, yeah, back in 2000, there was something like 7,000 banks in the United States. Mm-hmm. Uh, and now it's down to something like uh, 5,000. And it's been a pretty steady downward trend. 
And I think, again, the big banks are sort of rubbing their hands together with all this stuff because, you know, banking, it's like it's not really like a a growth sector, but it certainly helps if you gain market share and that'll help your company grow. So I think there's going to be, whether it's intentional or sort of intentional in the sense that they let it happen and then pick up the pieces. I think there's going to be more and more failures of smaller banks going forward. And I I think that's a little troubling because I think small companies in any sector are important because that allows for new ideas to come about competition to the incumbents to keep them on their toes so they don't start getting lazy and treating you like garbage, the customer. I think it's important to have small companies and including banking. And I think it's a little troubling going forward if this is the trend. It's pretty clear though that that's happening. Yeah. Yeah, I would agree. I mean, I think that the big problem why we've, we've lost so many banks due to failures, consolidations, um, and most of the post-08 uh, banking regulations are extreme. I mean, the Dodd-Frank regulations are, are, are just, just extreme. And the number of new banking charters has declined precipitously. That's it's impossible. I mean, and that, that's what they were trying to do with this rollback. It's like make it a little bit easier for smaller companies to, to get going. But, you know, now this happens. and Yeah, and, and I think that it'll trend again in the opposite direction mm-hmm. where there'll be more banking regulation. Mm-hmm. Depending on how this shakes out over the next mm-hmm. six months, I think that everybody's kind of heard the rumblings of what's likely you know, a pretty large recession coming. So I think that there will be a, a huge uh, swing towards more banking regulation again, and uh, the result will just be more more consolidation. Yeah, it'll just create and, and more a lot of, and a, Yeah, and a lot of these regional banks will, will go the way to the dinosaur. I know that they're being, I mean, they're. I still don't know why they're being propped up. But they're being prop, propped up now, uh, but they will go away. Like, they're not going to be kept around forever. I think that this is like a stopgap measure until they can figure out what they're going to do. The problem is that none of these major, none of the major, major banks really want to get involved in what a lot of the regional banks do. Quite frankly, it's not that interesting to them. It doesn't generate that much cash. It's very much a hand-to-mouth thing. It's all about, you know, sort of very tightly knit customer management, relationship management, and account management with farmers and, and chemical plants and, you know, you know, the, the Nebraska, te- the Nebraska teachers pension fund. Like these are not, <laughs> these are not sexy accounts. If you know what I'm no. saying? Like, so, and, and they're not a lot of high growth. Yeah. Like, no, no hotshot Harvard MBA is going to uh, airdrop right. with this pinstripe suit into Omaha and or yeah, Iowa so, or wherever yeah. and try to work for yeah, one of these I mean, things. Give me. Yeah. So nobody really wants this business. This is these, okay. These, this is fundamental business. But nobody wants to. Get, nobody really wants to get in on it, mostly because there's not a lot of growth in it. It's very much a humdrum business. Always has been. And this is why banking used to be a very boring sector. By the way, banking was one of these sectors where yes, you could make it big, you could amass power. Most bankers amassed power through other means, mostly through their connections, through their ability to sort of leverage business deals. Their their wealth wasn't always just pure liquid cash that, that that was never really a thing for a long time with most bankers and 
To some extent, it still isn't. Most banks are smaller. Their assets are tied up in, you know, in their loans, and they don't have a lot of just cash lying around. They don't have dedicated trading floors. They don't have integrated operations. You know, that, you know, there is a big dichotomy still between most banks and B of A and Citibank and, and so forth. Do we want to talk about Credit Suisse? Yeah, I'm, I'm less familiar with the Swiss banking system, as one might expect, but I did do a little bit of reading. Right. Um, but if you have anything, uh, feel free to go, go on. Well, I think I, I think I think just said before we started that I see this as the continuation of the American, um, well, not the American, but the the what started as the American assault on the Swiss banking sector hmm. that really got going under Obama. Um it had been going on for a while, probably since the 80s, um, maybe longer. But it really got going under Obama when the SEC and the IRS and the US DOJ and the Treasury Department all got together and basically went after um, anybody who had money in Swiss bank accounts. And they forced the Swiss banking sector to reduce its level of secrecy. Um, and they used a variety of methodologies. Number one, that there were American tax cheats. Number two, that there were potential terrorists. Number three, that there were international drug dealers, international arms traffickers, so on and so on and so forth. So suddenly the Swiss were put into an uncomfortable position. And for the first time in hundreds of years, their banking secrecy was broken for the most part. Um, and they suddenly lost a lot of attractiveness as a banking sector. And ever since then, they've they've sort of had a, a series of stumbles. Um, Credit Suisse seems to be one of the many casualties of that. It has a constant liquidity crisis. One of the reasons it has a liquidity crisis, I, I would I would argue, is that nobody wants to deposit there anymore. The business that used to go to Swiss banks doesn't go to Swiss banks anymore because the banking sector there has been blown open. It doesn't. I mean, it doesn't have the same level of attractiveness on the face that it used to. It's still a great banking sector compared to 95% of other banking sectors on the planet. But when you're in that top five, you really have to differentiate yourself somehow. And I don't see what it is about the Swiss banking sector that's different, other than it's still very well-managed. Uh, well, actually, pri maybe privacy <laughs> was always the main appeal yes. to foreigners. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And that the Swiss, again, part of banking is is financial relationships. What can you do with my investment? It's not as simple as I can I run the numbers and I put it in the best spot. That's not that's not all of what banking is. A lot of banking is actually building business deals. You know, one of one of the things that banks actually participate in, for example, is underwriting. Banks are often brought in on a business deal as a third party for short-term financing, for underwriting, for audit. You know, they perform, they help perform audits, they help perform financial analysis, they have teams of lawyers they can bring in. Banks have a wide range of services that they provide to business arrangements. And this gives them a huge amount of power. They know what business deals are going on. They know who the players are at various companies. They can then go to those companies later and say, listen, we're getting a big investment from so-and-so, and, -so, and uh, we want to put his money into a good location. We know there's probably a lot of, you know, 
room to invest in your company. What can you give us for this money? And what can we get out of it? And this is what banks go and do. It's not just about pure number crunching. And I think the Swiss still have that advantage. They are good business makers. They have connections throughout Europe. They have connections in North Africa and in, in, in the Far East still. They can leverage those. But the privacy was the big thing that, that really differentiated the Swiss banking sector. And without that, I think they'll continue to decline. They'll, they will lose the deposits that used to um, really keep them afloat. I mean, Credit Suisse, too, from my understanding, um, it's not as important as something like Deutsche Bank, where it's... No, 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 no. It's, it's, you know, sort of like Deutsche Bank is integrated into the European industrial economy. That's right. Like, he- he- heavily. And if this has always been the fear with Deutsche Bank. If Deutsche Bank goes down... The European utilities and industrial sector and, and chemical sector, now all of it will 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 have will suffer severe financial problems, short-term and long-term financial financing issues. Whereas Credit Suisse is not as invested tightly into the European industrial sector. Uh, the irony is that Credit Suisse was actually created, I think, in its initial charter is basically an industrial bank. Its its job was to give financing to factories in, in Germany or Switzerland or something. But now it's it's yeah. just sort of one of these strange financial institutions. It's like a holdover. <laughs> it, just, okay. it, doesn't, it doesn't really do any of that industrial stuff anymore. If, if I may uh, yeah, give, my, give, my, give my thoughts. The, the difference between the Swiss banking system and the German banking system, I think, are pretty clear if we're going to be very general. Um, however, there are nuances within Switzerland that I think we'll, we'll get to in a moment. But just to start off, I think you're absolutely right that Deutsche Bank, for example, is much more systemically important to the actual real economy than somebody like uh, Credit Suisse, if for no other reason that actually banking is an export sector for Switzerland, as opposed to in Germany, industry right. is an export sector. And what that means is that the the Swiss industry, which does exist, I mean, Nestle and uh, ABB, and which is sort of a, a Swedish-Swiss uh, combine, those are sort of semi-industrial companies. Uh, th- they obviously need banking, and historically, I'm sure they went to the Swiss banking system for that capital predominantly. But nowadays, I mean, they can go anywhere. They're multinational. It doesn't really matter. And so what does that really do for the UBSs of the world and the Credit Suisses of the world? They've turned to external foreign parties for their business, and you know historically that was sort of uh, you know Nazis trying <laughs> trying to put their gold away, you know, for after the war. Uh, in in you know the European aristocracy would sort of use them as places for storing their wealth, but you know more recently that's become much more global in the sense that you know every Arab sheik and uh, Asian billionaire is probably going to have a Swiss bank account. And so they cater to that customer and clientele much more than they do industry. Um, and I do want to point out again that UBS is a Swiss bank that does have a lot of private clients uh, and uh, large depositors, wealthy clients. And I don't know the numbers on it compared to Credit Suisse, but I did pull up uh, an article on 
Yahoo Finance that the default swaps on Credit Suisse cost 18 times as much as UBS. And that just tells you right there that the bond market is usually the the place to look for uh, forward-looking uh, predictions as opposed to the stock market. And that, that tells you that Credit Suisse is in trouble. Um, but as, as opposed to how UBS uh, runs its business versus Credit Suisse, I'm not really sure. Uh, but I would imagine it's very much uh, private client focus as opposed to um, industrial customer focus as like as like with Deutsche Bank. Uh, what I did pull up though on Credit Suisse in particular was, and I think UBS is uh, actually being brought in as the buyer uh, of Credit Suisse as of a couple of days ago from the uh, Swiss National Bank, who's also participating in this this deal. Uh, but UBS um, is obviously the, the stronger of the two. And the real question is why did Credit Suisse run into these issues? Some of it has to do, I think, with what's been going on in the United States, causing a general decline in confidence. But what that does is it, it sort of lowers the tide again, and then those that have a, uh, a skimpier set of uh, trunks on are going to be exposed, and Credit Suisse happens to be one of them. But the tide going out didn't cause this. It's really the fact that the tide going out plus the fact that they had problems to begin with is really what caused it. It's the synthesis of those two. And from my preliminary reading on it, Credit Suisse has had a, a, a long decade long, at least spell where they were losing deposits. And I think what that makes this bank have in common with Silicon Valley bank is that because they have those large depositor customers, it looks a lot like what was happening with Silicon Valley bank, just on a much slower basis. And I think I read somewhere that they had something like 700 billion in deposits at one point, and now they're down to about 500 billion as of a couple weeks ago, but now who knows what it is. Uh, but when you have that downward trend, it's not good. And also, uh, when you've had apparently a series of scandals and a, just a general lack of oversight and risk management, uh, at that bank, again, these, negative conditions create panics. And so what were those particular issues at Credit Suisse? They had some sort of weird case where they were actually spying on their own employees. Don't know the details, but right off the bat, that sounds a little bit odd. Uh, and then I think more concerning uh, was they had this account that was trading um, with them. It's basically a a large customer that wanted to, to speculate and it was like a hedge fund and they were trading on margin and this company, I don't have the name of it in front of me, but this company uh, a few years ago was, was doing this and they were trading with other banks uh, of course, because when you're a big hedge fund, you need to spread out your trade so it doesn't make them make the market activity too obvious. So your competitors can, screw you over and get in front of you. So you usually use different banks. Um, and what happened was they, they made some bad, bad trades and they were, because they were on a margin margin account, they were levered up. Basically they got margin called and they didn't have the money. But what, what made it worse was that not only did credit Suisse have them as a client, they were so slow and just not on the ball basically as to finding out like, that these guys were in the red and needing to re up their, their margin account that their, 
competitor banks figured it out before them and they actually got their money. But by the time Credit Suisse showed up and asked these guys, hey, we need to, we need to see some money here. You, you guys aren't, aren't doing so well. They didn't have anything for them. And so I think it's just, it's symptomatic probably of deeper issues, but a company that's spying on its own employees, it's losing accounts uh, or deposits slowly but surely. Uh, and it's not even quick enough to figure out that their, their clients are, are screwing them over basically. And then their competitors are actually getting a jump on them just shows you that, you know, it's just poorly managed. Um, this also like apparently started when they were acquiring uh, first Boston, which I would imagine is, is trying to service similar types of large accounts in uh, the United States. And I think they bought them back in the nineties. I mean, I, I just remember credit Suisse first Boston being this like thing back then. And apparently that was sort of maybe one of the reasons why they started doing poorly was that they were, they were expanding abroad. You know, every, every company has you know, usually pressure on them to, to grow. And so I'm sure that's like why they were doing that. But apparently they just, they didn't understand what they were doing very well. And it, um, it was one of the things that this, uh, this guy who was writing about this, uh, cited as one of the factors that led to their decline. So all of that, plus whatever other factors I missed, you know, obviously created some issues. And again, I think it's, it's not necessarily one thing or the other thing. It's a, it's a confluence of factors and it's already to begin with a very complex, um, element where, or or animal when you're, you're looking at financial institutions, but that plus external shocks causes these, these runs and why, the Swiss banking system stepped in was because again, it could, it could just get even worse if they don't. Um, I, I wanted to mention one more major thing. Wh- where, where is this, all this coming from? I mean, yes, these, these banks were obviously not managed that great. Okay. But what is this external shock? Is it the fact that the, the banks made these trades a few years ago and then all of a sudden it just suddenly catches up with them? I don't think that's quite explaining it. I think what's been happening, and I think I mentioned it very briefly, but I think what's been happening is there's a general concern over the past year that we're entering a recession. But even before that, and we all have experienced it, there was a lot of inflation. Where did that come from? Hans mentioned that back in 2018, when some of these regulations were passed, there was no inflation. And that was the case for 30 years. Taking a step back as to why that is, I mean, it's even longer of a discussion, but it's more like Okay, globalization, to make it simple, allowed for a lot of efficiencies. And the government, the United States in particular, has been spending more than it takes in tax dollars. That's inflationary. But to reverse that effect, this Chinese labor effect, this um, matching and mixing of all the different uh, companies up throughout a global system, creates a lot of opportunities for wringing out efficiencies and lowering costs. And so that offsets that stuff. Well, what happened in 2020? COVID and supply chain shutdowns and huge government stimulus and a, a, basically an increase in demand by giving people free money and then a lowering of supply by having these choked off supply chains by having restrictions in travel and, and people can't go to work, et cetera, creates a decline in supply. And so when you have a jump in demand and (laughs) decline in supply, you have a shortage. That's exactly what happened. And that causes prices to go up. So we had this huge, massive spike in inflation. And everybody's like, why is this all, you know, all of a sudden happening? Well, 
what did you guys do during COVID? It's not, it doesn't take a, a rocket scientist, but maybe it takes an economist to figure this out. But it's not that complex. It's supply and demand stuff. And that's where the inflation came from. So after Powell had reversed, his, he's actually, he was tightening, the Federal Reserve Chairman, Jerome Powell, he had, he had actually started tightening in 2019, I think. He had to reverse that during COVID because everything was just imploding. And he brought rates back down to zero, effectively. And once the lockdown started opening up, he was like, all right, well, inflation's coming back. Well, maybe it'll go away. That, that's where that transitory inflation thing came from. That didn't happen. Uh, most people paying attention to this type of stuff didn't really think it was going to happen. But he was sort of doing part of his job is like trying to create, you know, uh, a set of expectations that this will go down and people then hopefully would not actually start jacking their own prices up, creating the self-fulfilling prophecy of inflation. There's many books written on how inflation actually starts. A lot of it has to do, again, with people's perceptions. But in any case, inflation stayed, and then the Ukraine war happened, causing commodity prices to go nuts. And so there really just was like this horrible backdrop and confluence of events that caused shortages and prices to go up. So what did the Fed do? They started raising rates. And that's typically what they do when they're trying to control inflation. And they also have a, a dual mandate now, which is, uh, by the way, backing even further up. What is the Fed even for? Well, setting aside the creature from Jekyll Island conspiracy theories, which I don't completely discount, but just on the surface of it, why is it there? Its first and primary and original function was to ensure banking stability. This is exactly why it was built for to cause a increase in confidence and also mechanisms for mitigating bank runs. So it did its job this week, arguably. And prior to that, prior to 1913 or thereabouts, whenever it was, it was founded, prior to that, the United States and just about every country that didn't have a central bank had a huge problem with bank runs or, and, and runs in the bank and bank failures. This wasn't just some like free market paradise where everything was fine until the Fed showed up. No, it actually was pretty, pretty annoying when you had banks failing and your money was there and you couldn't get it and you were basically screwed. I don't think any normal person wants that situation. I think they can sort of appreciate at least the concept of having a large backstop to runs on the bank. Because again, the bank may be fine. It's just people think it's not fine. And then all of a sudden they ask for all their money. And because they don't have it, because it's lent out to various companies, it causes actually an even worse situation uh, than a couple of people not being able to get their deposits. Um, it causes everybody to get nothing. And so that's bad. And that's why central banks are supposed to protect against that. So in the seventies, when we actually had a similar spell of inflation, uh, inflation was added. And then I think actually maybe prior to that inflation was, it was sort of a thing that the fed was targeting against. But then in, I think in the seventies, um, at least employment was a second mandate that the U S federal reserve was, was given. So again, back to COVID and then after COVID employment is actually doing okay believe it or not, because everybody's trying to get workers back uh, all of a sudden. And so employment drops really hard. But when that happens, also wages go up because companies have to compete for workers. So that was causing all this inflation. And so Powell starts hiking rates. When he hikes rates, 
that causes what we just talked about in the beginning of the show, whatever securities people were holding to become less valuable, at least the bonds. And he kept raising them. He kept raising them because the inflation just was like, we haven't seen this in a long time. So he was trying to get it under control. But the speed at which he did it, and I think this is where I will criticize the Fed, is unprecedented. It just is. The amount at which he raised it on an absolute basis is not unprecedented because Paul Volcker raised it more, but he started from a higher base. It was like probably where it is now roughly, and then he raised it to 10%, and eventually it got up to 20%, which is insane compared to where we are now, which is only about 5%. But again, it was like that's that's like a four times increase, like 5% to 20%. It was almost at zero. And all these bonds were bought by people and held at these places like these banks. And when you raise rates up to 5% from 0.002 or whatever it was, again, it worked out to about a 5,700% increase. And that's never happened. You know, 400%, That That's a massive difference. And I think that's really what caught everybody off guard. It screwed everybody's balance sheet up. And it's caused havoc. I mean, the stock market's already been been plummeting for the past year. But this sort of banking stuff was kind of like on on stasis because of that held hold a maturity clause in the banking charter system, I guess. They didn't have to reflect these changes. And then all of a sudden when they had to, it created this catastrophe. And, you know, we'll see what happens. But this month, the Fed is still on track to very possibly raise rates again. And a lot of people have been saying they need actually start needing to go backwards now because this this financial stability thing is is really coming undone. Uh, people had asked, Powell, what would you do to cause you to stop these rates going up? And he said, if something breaks. And I think something just did. Um, and if he does it again, raise rates, that is, uh, I really start questioning this man's sanity and, and responsibility in his position. I, I generally don't dislike him that much, but if he's if he's this tone deaf to what's going on, um, I think it just sort of like begs the question, why do we have academics making these major decisions? I think it's very dangerous, but we'll see. Interestingly, the ECB, the European Central Bank, the equivalent to the Fed over in basically Germany, France, and Italy, the, the three main ones in, in Europe, they they raised by 50 basis points after Credit Suisse got, got whacked. So it's very possible the Fed's going to raise. I don't think they're going to raise more than 25 basis points. I will be shocked if they do 50. I think that guy, you know, Powell is probably going to have calls for his resignation if he does that. Um, it's possible he does zero. I don't think he's going to go negative, but um, I think they'll be lowering rates by the end of the year. So th- those are my forecasts and comments about the yeah I, I i agree with you i think he's gonna lower rates again i think yeah, he's gonna the big gonna question chicken, is how gonna, quickly yeah he's but he's gonna chicken out i, I mean i think he he probably will but i'm not so sure about this this next round we'll, we'll see well part of it I've, I've heard this take on powell before is that the man is worth two three hundred million dollars he's pretty checked out like you know, he's not that terribly invested in in the outcome here, and it, this is just you know ultimately it's not it's not life or death, and 
I don't think he's too worried about becoming Fed chair again, is my my guess. So he's not exactly going to do what's needed, but he's also probably not going to do what's super popular. He's probably going to do something that's in the realm of generally just not well liked, which will just be slightly lowering rates. He'll slightly lower them. The year will end with them lower, but it might just be incrementally lower than they are now. I don't think he'll do a big uh, he'll he'll never go negative and he'll never lower rates, you know, excessively at this point. But I think by the end of the year, you're right. The, the rates will be slightly lower. And and that's that's just because nobody really wants to acknowledge that the only way out of this is forward. The only way out of this is to say, okay, look, there's a lot of zombie companies out there. <laughs> there's a lot of companies that don't have a good business model. There's a lot of companies that don't have a good profit model. There's a lot of companies, there's a lot of financial institutions that are not well capitalized. Some of them are going to have to go. This, you know, we can't continue to subsidize the existence of poorly run and, and nonsensical companies indefinitely because it might have a bad jobs report. Like this, this can't go on. I know it's politi polit politically expedient, and I know people like to invest in innovation, but it just can't go on much longer. Uh, but he doesn't really want to do that. If my impression of Powell is that if he wanted to actually get a real stranglehold on the problem, he would have done it last year. Now it's too late. Now there's a, you know, a, a, an unfolding banking crisis. And he can't raise now because it'll probably create even more financial havoc. If he had raised before this happened, when there wasn't an actual crisis going on, then he probably could have avoided it being even worse. But now I, I would say that he won't, he won't raise. He's just going to slightly lower over the course of the year and then leave it at that. And I think he's probably, he's pro I think he's probably done as Fed chair. I think this is his last, you know, he's going to ride it out and then he's yep. going to walk away and, and, and just put it behind him. He doesn't strike me as a guy that's too terribly interested in some kind of legacy, the way that Greenspan and Bernanke were. I think that Powell has just seen this as a as a gig, as a job, and uh, probably just thought it'd be interesting. Um, I, I don't see him trying to make any bold moves. I think he's going to do what gets him, you know, a good amount of of flack, but not exactly, you know, uh, a ton of pressure one way or the other to, to give to give the guy some credit because like you say this sort of zero interest rate policy stuff is creating systemic issues where a lot of hot money is sloshing around trying to find a home and it goes into places like silicon valley which you know a lot of it actually helps but it does create a lot of duds and that's like acknowledged by venture capitalists that you basically have like one company out of 20 investments that actually make up for all the losses on most of those. And if you never incur those losses, obviously then, you know, we have an issue where we're, we're funding 
we're, we're wasting, we're wasting money. We're wasting people's time. We're wasting resources. That's not good. So you do need to clean that out periodically. Um, but to, to give Powell credit, you know, that that's been the sort of the mandate for the past 15 years since the financial crisis. And are you ever going to bring things back to the, to the situation where historically throughout the U S economic history rates have always been much higher they've been higher than where they are now. And it's like, if you can't ever run a, run a business on that, I mean, again, it, it's like your business is probably flawed. And so there is something to be said for an increase in a general level of, um, conservative, uh, in, in the, in the business sector, uh, as a general rule that hopefully causes people to scrutinize these ideas a little bit harder. The opposite argument is that this will actually crush innovation and maybe that's true, but I don't know. I mean, the, the internet thing happened in the nineties when rates were at seven, 8%. <laughs> so I don't think that's, that holds any water. Um, and again, flate inflation is an issue and I, I don't fault the intentions of Powell of what he's been trying to do. I really only, my only problem with, with what he's done is just at the speed at which they've jacked rates up. And I think honestly, and this is partly not his fault. He's just kind of an old man. I don't think he's really plugged in to what's actually happening in real time, as opposed to the rest of decision makers in the real economy. I think he's, I mean, I'm, I'm shocked to hear that he's made $200 million. I know that he had a private investment fund and so maybe he did a good job, but he always sort of struck me as kind of like a, a very ponderous thinker. doesn't mean he's bad, you know, at, at thinking, but like, you know, when you're an investor, usually you need to, uh, be pretty plugged in. And he, and I think somebody asked him like, how do you, what, what's, what's a typical day for you? Like Jerome and Jerry. And he's like, uh, well, you know, I, I, I start with the papers and I'm like the papers, like, you know, just like, again, like, this is like your dad talking. It's like newspapers. It's like Warren Buffett does the same thing. And he doesn't even have a smartphone. I, I was just about <laughs> to say that it's like such a Buffettism. Like, oh, I start with the papers. Yeah, you know, it's 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 this like the old Midwestern codger. That <laughs> I mean, you know, fine. That's that's like good for grandpa and uncle, you know, Jerry. But you know, you're making. I mean, literally, the Fed is the most powerful financial institution in the world. Like, full stop. And if you got a guy who is not even aware of what's going on on a Friday because he's, you know, in his jammies and he's going to bed at, at uh, eight o'clock and he wakes up on a Saturday and everybody on Twitter is already all over this. And, you know, he's like, what? <laughs> well, the paper's not even on his on his uh, front porch yet. And he finds out at two o'clock and it's like. I don't think this is, again, it's sort of indicative of like how disconnected Washington is from the rest of society. Um, it's not his fault. It's just, it's a fault of the system. And the fact that we, we don't have any fresh blood in there, I think is, is a bigger issue we're, we're going through. Um, you know, Gen X has sort of been shafted pretty hard here where you've got AOC, the millennial uh, in, in chief, going past them. And, and I think there's more millennials in Congress than Gen Xers at this point. And Gen Xers are older and typically, you know, Congress people are, you know, in their forties and fifties. And, you know, we just have speakers of the house that are in their seventies and it's all boomers. And, um, just a general, you know, symptom, I think of a, of a deeper issue in this country, but 
You know, I, I will give Powell some credit. I think his intentions are good. I just think he's a little bit too old and he doesn't quite have grasp of the later tools that have been developed. And, and they, they use these lagging indicators that comes out of like, not even the fed. It's like the Bureau of labor statistics. And these things like take months to compile. They come out like in the middle of the month for the, the previous month. And it's just like, dude, you, you really think like the economy is doing fine. Like the stock market has been plunging. Everybody, you know, who's paying attention to corporate earnings knows that these companies are going to be downward revising. The consumer's tapped out. I mean, but he doesn't know. He doesn't know these things, or at least he's not willing to act on it uh, for, you know, arguably some rational reason that he doesn't want to listen to Wall Street. But if he's just listening to the BLS and using lagging indicators, I think given how fast things move today, as evidenced by this last weekend, I think it's a real dangerous sign that, you know, our our leaders are kind of at the sleep of the wheel. I mean, I think the analogy to make here is like, imagine your military was waiting for the newspaper to tell him that the enemy has invaded. The Pentagon has spy satellites and NORAD and real-time listening substations under the ocean to like alert them immediately if something happens. Wouldn't you think that maybe the the financial center of the country ought to have similar reactivity and ability to to act? I, I would argue it should, um, and it just doesn't. I mean, and, and some of this is a little bit ludicrous, obviously, to compare it to high speed trading. I mean, things have gotten so bonkers in the other direction in Wall Street that, like, they're literally they're tearing down buildings that are next to the stock exchange to get you know half a millisecond shaved off the the, the trading so they can front run all the other hedge funds. I mean, that that stuff is it's, it's silly, but. Um, you do need to be aware of what's happening. And I think, you know, a guy who's reading the papers is, is really, I think, indicative of, of a system that's a little bit antiquated. Don't look now, but there's something funny going on over there at the bank, George. I've never really seen one, but that's got all the earmarks of being a run. Now... Just remember that this thing isn't as black as it appeared. I have some news for you, folks. I was just talking to old man Potter, and he's guaranteed cash payments to the bank. The bank's going to reopen next week. But, George, I got my money here. Did he guarantee this place? Well, no, Charlie. I didn't even ask him. We don't need Potter over here. And I'll take mine now. No, but you're, you're, you're thinking of this place all wrong, as if I had the money back in a safe. The, the money's not here. Well, your money's in Joe's house. That's right next to yours. And in the Kennedy house, and Mrs. Maitland's house, and a hundred others. Uh, you're lending them the money to build, and then they're going to pay it back to you as best they can. Now, what are you going to do, foreclose on them? I got $242 in here, and $242 isn't going to break anybody. Okay, Tom. All right. Here you are, you sign this, you get your money in 60 days. 60 days? Well, now that's what you agreed to when you bought your shares. Tom, Tom, did you get your money? No. Well, I did. Old man Potter will pay 50 cents on the dollar for every share you've got. 50 cents on the dollar? Yes, cash. Well, what do you say? 
No, Tom, you have to stick to your original agreement. Now, give us 60 days on this. Okay, thing. Randall. Are you going to Potter's? Better to get half than nothing. Tom! Tom! Randall, now, Randall, wait. Wait. Now, listen. Now, listen to me. I, I beg of you not to do this thing. If Potter gets a hold of this building and alone, there'll never be another decent house built in this town. He's already got charge of the bank, he's got the bus line, he's got the department stores, and now he's after us. Why? Well, it's very simple, because we're cutting in on his business, that's why. And because he wants to keep you living in his slums and paying the kind of rent he decides. Joe, you had one of those Potter houses, didn't you? Well, have you forgotten? Have you forgotten what he charged you for that broken down shack? Here, Ed, you know, you remember last year when things weren't going so well and you couldn't make your payments? Well, you didn't lose your house, did you? You think Potter would have let you keep it? Can't you understand what's happening here? Don't you see what's happening? Potter isn't selling, Potter's buying. And why? Because we're panicky and he's not, that's why. He's picking up some bargain. Now, we, we can get through this thing, all right. We, we've got to stick together, though. We've got to have faith in each other. But my husband hasn't worked in over a year, and I need money. How am I going to live until the bank opens? I got Dr. Bills to pay. I need cash. I can't keep Dr. own faith. I've got to have... How much do you need? Hey! I got $2,000. Here's $2,000. This will tide us over to the bank reopens. All right, Tom, how much do you need? $242. Oh, Tom, just enough to tide you over to the bank reopens. I'll take $242. That'll close my account. Your account's still here. That's a loan. Okay. All right, Ed. Well, I got $300 here, George. All right, now, Ed, what'll it take until the bank opens? What do you need? Well, I suppose... Twenty dollars? Twenty dollars. Now you're talking. Right. Thanks, Ed. That's fine. All right. Now, Miss Thompson, how much do you want? But it's your own money, now, George. Don't mind about that. How much do you want well, now? I can get along with twenty, all right. Twenty dollars. Fine. And I'll sign there the papers. You don't have to sign anything. I know you. You pay when you can. That's okay. All right, Miss Davis. Could I have seventeen fifty? <laughs> <laughs> That's your heart. Of course you can have it. You got fifty cents. Seven. We're gonna make it, George. Six. It'll never close us up today. Five, four, three. Two, one, bingo! We made a couple door usage. We made it. Look, look, we're still in business. We still got two bucks left. Well, look, let's have some of that. Let's celebrate.